welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Susie Dennison and I'm the Director of the European Power Programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And this week we'll of course be talking about transatlantic relations. So the inauguration ceremony for the new president and vice president of the US took place yesterday with actually far fewer hitches than many feared after the storming of the capital earlier this month. But beyond the optics of a new start, how do Europeans assess the future of the transatlantic relationship now that Joe Biden is the new American president? And what does this mean for policymakers in European capitals and across the Atlantic in Washington, D.C.? To discuss these questions, I'm really happy to welcome our usual host, Mark Leonard, director and co-founder of ECFR. I'm slightly intimidated to be sitting in his virtual seat with him participating, but I'll do my best as well as Jeremy Shapiro, our research director and in-house US expert, as our guest on this podcast. So thank you both very much for joining us. Great to have you here. (laughs) (laughs) ECFR commissioned a pan-European survey, which was conducted by YouGov and DataPraxis last November and at the beginning of December, when it was already clear that Joe Biden was going to be the next president of the United States. And Mark, you and Ivan Prastev wrote a really interesting analysis based on this survey, which we launched two days ago now. Can you start us off by summarising what the headline findings were for you? Yes, of course. And thanks, Susie. You're doing a fantastic job. Maybe you could put a bit more energy into the shape the world bit. But oh, no, he's not intimidating at all, is he? <laughs> no, it's great to be here with the two of you talking about this survey, which we asked 15,000 Europeans about how they thought about the incoming Biden administration. And what we found in a sentence was that most Europeans in most countries are very happy that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. But they think that America has got a new president, but not a new country. And they have severe doubts about whether America can come back as a global leader. And that manifests itself in various different ways. A majority of Europeans think that the American political system is broken. A majority of them think that China is going to overtake the US as the biggest power in the world in the next decade. There are a lot of people who think that America will not always be there to defend Europeans from security threats. And interestingly, when we asked people how important the US security guarantee was, we found that the number of people who thought it was very important, existential, was much lower than it probably was if we'd done the survey most of the, the last few decades. And only one in 10 Germans, for example, thought that it was very important. So that was quite a sobering sense of where America's going. It shows that Europeans are very aware of the crisis of democracy, but maybe even more dramatic than that is an awareness of the crisis of, of American power. And that is leading Europeans to some quite radical conclusions about what they should do in terms of the transatlantic relationship. I could go into that now or we can wait to carry on. Well, no, maybe it would be interesting to hear from you, Jeremy. You're not joining us from Washington today, but you've been spending a lot of time stateside recently. And sort of hearing Mark falling through the data, as I'm sure you have been doing, what do you think the Biden administration are reading into this picture? And do they really sort of care what Europeans are thinking about the transatlantic relationship? What policy conclusions do you think they're going to be drawing? Yeah, they care. Not a huge amount, but they care. I think that from their perspective, half of these findings, really most of these findings won't be surprising because it's their view that the Trump administration destroyed U.S. alliances. 
that it created an impression of the United States that was very bad abroad. And they have specifically, Biden himself, his new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, have really focused on the fact that they need to restore American leadership, restore American credibility, and just restore a better tone to U.S. alliance relationships. So they're not going to be surprised to find that there's been a real disintegration in the opinion of people about the United States. I think that the disagreement that they would have very strongly is sort of about the future. It's about the question of what can be done about that. They really believe that this is a Trump problem and that a Biden administration can undo it by reversing those policies. And so they would expect, they would not be surprised by these results, but they would be expect the same polls next year to show a completely different picture, a picture of a United States restored, a transatlantic relationship restored. And so I think the, the sort of analytical question is whether the damage that Trump has done is permanent or whether a Biden administration can undo it. They deeply believe that they can undo it. Mark, do you agree that there are prospects? You and Jeremy and actually a number of other colleagues wrote a piece for ECFR before Christmas on how to transform the transatlantic relationship. What do you feel the prospects are for this kind of relaunch now? Well, I think they're very good. I think it's, it's, it's really important for the US and for the EU to restore this relationship, which is enormously important for both sides. But where I think our poll is interesting is it, it shows that it's going to have to be transformed rather than restored. Because if you look at the policy conclusions that Europeans drew from the analysis I just put out, that's pretty sobering from a Biden administration perspective. And these questions were asked after Biden was the victor of the election. So he might not have been inaugurated yet, but this was not about Trump, this opinion poll. This was about America. And there were four quite stark findings which we we had when we asked people what the policy conclusions from their analysis of America were. And the first was, I think, the you know $64 million question, because American policy under Biden is basically about trying to restore these alliances so that the US can do a better job with its competition with China about the rules of the 21st century. And the transatlantic relationship is an important, if not the most important, but it's an important part of that. But when we ask people whose side they should take in a disagreement between the United States and China, the most popular answer in every single country surveyed was not that we should align with America or with China for that matter, but it's that we should stay neutral. That was a finding which we had last year when we did the poll the first time. And we were quite shocked by how few people in different countries wanted to align with America. But at that time, we thought this was a a Trump answer and had a lot to do with people's lack of trust for Trump. But the question now was asked after uh, Trump in a kind of post-Trump era. And the answer is exactly the same. That answer goes along with some of the other answers that we have. We also asked people you know, whether they thought that they should invest in their own defense because they couldn't trust Americans to to defend them. And again, a large majority of people said yes to that. We asked people whether we should become uh, tougher with the US on economic issues or whether we should should be kind of softer and seek more of a rapprochement. And again, a majority of people at least wanted to keep policies as they were under Trump, but if not, make them even tougher. And then finally, we asked them, who's most important to your country's future? Which relationships are most important? 
in most of the countries we surveyed, people said Berlin was more important than, than Washington. So that does show, I think, something structural going on, which is not just about Trump. Admittedly, it's a snapshot. We can do the poll again in a year's time and see where, where people land on it. But it shows that Europeans are basically worried about aligning with America in a new Cold War with China, not because they don't like Trump, sorry, not because they don't like Biden <laughs> and what he's promising to do. But I think because they worry that they will be on the losing side this time around. It was great to be on the winning side in Cold War 1.0. But if they think that China's going to overtake the US, if they think that the US could elect another Trump within four years time, and that they're not going to be able to concentrate on international issues, which were all the things that we found in our poll, that means that they want to rely a little bit less on them. And they don't maybe don't have the confidence that America can come back in the way that Biden is promising, even if his intentions are good. Jeremy, talking about feeling a little less confident at the beginning of 2021 than perhaps last year, one of the countries on the question that Mark was just referring to about which country is the most important relationship for you, one of the countries that was an outlier on that question was the UK, where unlike most of the other states we looked at, Germany didn't come through as the strongest answer. Indeed, the US still was there very strongly. How do you see the UK-Europe relationship evolving with the new Biden administration in place? And to what extent do you think the UK is going to have a sort of a wake-up call in terms of what the special relationship really means now? Oh, Susie, why are you talking about the UK? If you're, you're betraying your UK roots, we don't even need that for this conversation. I think that sort of indicates the, the issue. You know, the UK is the important partner for Europe, it's an important partner for the United States, but it's not going to structure the US-European relationship from the outside. It wasn't really even able to do that from the inside. The US has its own relationships with the EU, with, the, with France, with Germany, and, and the US is, I think, particularly the new team, but frankly, even the old team, was of the view that um, uh, that those countries are really important and that they have to have their own relationship. And I think the, the Biden administration is even more of the view that the place to go for a partner that can really deliver on the international scene is Brussels and Berlin and Paris, not so much London. It doesn't mean they're not going to have a good relationship with London, but it doesn't but it means that it's not going to be the most active partner. That's, you know, part of the choice that the UK made in Brexit. And I'm living in the UK, so I'm not too thrilled about that. You're from the UK, so maybe you're not too thrilled about that. And, you know, they do speak English, so it's super nice to be able to talk to them and about them. But I think that's the reality that they voted for. Well, I'll try and keep my attention for the rest of this conversation on the European countries that do matter then. And Mark, <laughs> we've got, as of last Saturday, a new leader of the CDU in Germany. How do you think that a post-Merkel Germany affects this picture on, on the transatlantic? Susie, before you get to there, can I come back a little bit on, on what Mark was saying about what we need to do for a new transatlantic alliance? Because I think it's super interesting what he's saying about as conclusions about how the European population thinks about the United States. But I think I need to emphasize that the Biden team will not see it that way. They will not view this damage as permanent. They're, they're, the entire concept that they have, not just of the European public, but as the American public, is that you don't just take an opinion like that and accept it and bend to it, that you change it. And that they're going to say, well, yeah, maybe people don't trust us right now. We have a lot of work to do to regain that trust, but we can do it. And that's where we're going to concentrate our efforts. We're not going to accept 
the crisis of American power. We're going to insist that it is a crisis of Donald Trump's making and that with work, we can undo it. I think you'll see a lot of effort to do that. I think interestingly, despite the findings of the public, you'll see that a lot of European leaders will be quite receptive to that. And so there will be a little bit of a sort of conspiracy amongst the European and American governments to sort of try to return to a status quo ante, even if the public is implying they want something different. Buck, do you agree with that? Do you think that that's how um, European governments are going to play? Will they be pleased to go along with that perception if that's what Biden tries to do? But Europeans want nothing more than to have a powerful America with whom they can work. And I think they will love working with Biden, certainly compared to the last four years. But the question really is the basis on which this relationship is going to work. And I think we've had an early clue as to whether this is a a sort of structural change or whether it was just about Trump in the debate about the comprehensive agreement on investment over China, the CAI, which is quite a technical deal, which most people haven't really noticed. But there was a, a decision taken in Berlin by Angela Merkel, somebody who was so Atlanticist that when country was completely against the Iraq war, she supported it because of her deep belief in the relationship with the US rather than a particular desire to invade Middle Eastern countries. She pushed through against all the odds and against opposition from her domestic audience, from other European countries, a move to sign this comprehensive agreement on investments with China after it was clear that Biden had won the election at a time when his prospective national security advisor was asking Europeans publicly, and I'm sure privately as well, to slow down, to wait until the new administration was in place so that they could work out a a common transatlantic approach to deal with China. This was all water off a duck's back. It was not something which was pursued, as I said, because Angela Merkel is anti-American, believes in some sort of neo-Gaulist agenda for Europe. But I think it was a pragmatic decision based on the fact that A, she didn't necessarily know whether the US was going to be able to deliver these sorts of issues, but also she realises the importance of China to the German economy. She's not going to be there if we do the poll in 2022. (laughs) You know, a lot of things. Maybe not, maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, I know that Jeremy thinks that she'll probably outlast Xi Jinping. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as, uh, as the leader of Germany. Anyway, she may or may not be there in a year's time. But the sentiment that she was channeling, I think, is based on a real question about how present America is going to be on, on lots of different issues. I think no Europeans will complain if, if they're proven wrong by the Biden administration, if there is a huge amount of energy that goes into solving global problems, if America comes back in lots of different ways, if it has enough power to face down China on some of these difficult issues. I think Europeans will be very happy to see that happen. I also do think that it shows that the sort of relationship that we will have to develop if we want to build a new Atlanticism is going to be one which is going to be a lot more balanced and a lot more equal and is going to involve Europeans making their own judgments about whether they want to sign up 
to trade and investment agreements with China, rather than being told by the Biden administration that it's not a good idea and therefore kind of falling into line. Yeah, well, One of the questions which I think we'll need to answer is where the whole of the US government will also make that adjustment, because in the past, Europeans have got lots of mixed messages from different US administrations about how relaxed they are about Europeans pursuing their own interests and how much their respective administrations, particularly friendly ones, want to infantilise But do you think that there's space for a sort of a bargain to be struck? You know, because there seems to be quite a high level of scepticism on Jeremy's side about the extent to which Europeans really sort of can start to shape this relationship, given the kind of the instincts on the US side to play this as a Trump blip. And now things go back to normal. Do you think there's space where kind of on some files, Europe can play more of a role in shaping the agenda, in supporting this kind of re-engagement with the international system that we're expecting from the Biden administration? Jeremy, how do you see that? I think it's possible. I'm just not as convinced as Mark that the signs are so good. I think on the, in the first instance, the U.S. government is not likely to take the view that Mark advocates. I would advocate it too, by the way, that they should sort of have a new respect for European decision-making capability and that they should accept decisions like the investment treaty with China lying down. I think they're likely to have a sort of concerted campaign which says, no, the way that you deal with China is a test of the transatlantic relationship and put it this strongly, and they'll be a lot nicer about it than the Trump people. But they'll say, you know, you have to be with us on this. This is a key test for us. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether this investment treaty really can survive that kind of transatlantic onslaught, kind of American onslaught. It's not a done deal. After all, it still has to get formal approval from the European Council, has sort of informal approval, and it needs to go through the European Parliament. So I think there's still a lot of time for the Americans. And I think it will be a mistake for them to do this. But I detect in Washington that they're going to, that they're going to sort of create a big hullabaloo in transatlantic relations to get that kind of thing disapproved. And I think it will be a mistake. And I think if Europeans stick together, if Europeans say, no, we want to do this treaty, it's not, as Mark says, it's not anti-American, but it reflects the fact that we need our own way with China, that we can cooperate with the United States on China, but that we're not going to take American diktats on China, then the United States will ultimately accommodate themselves to that. But I guess I'm a little skeptical that that will happen in the next year. I think the more likely outcome to me is that the sort of euphoria of the Biden administration election combined with the very sort of traditional American pressure to be faithful allies will hobble that reproach. Mark, you've both talked a little bit about China. What about from the Chinese perspective, from the Russian perspective? When we talked about this data sets with European journalists yesterday, one of the reactions was that this will all be very good news for China and Russia to see evidence of a crisis of American power at a time when Europeans are talking about sovereignty, but aren't really quite there yet in terms of building that up. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think that the crisis of American power is something that we've been living through for the last four years or even longer than that. Some of it is just about gravity. The US has gone from being in a quite exceptional and unsustainable position at the end of the Cold War in terms of the differential between its military power, its economic power and that of other players and a reality where power is going to be spread much more evenly around the world. And the relationship with Europe is, I think, 
a very important part of the American calculus in terms of its power, because it's quite clear that China will overtake the US very soon. It already has done on some indicators. But if you add up American allies together with the US and you compare it to China and all of its formal allies, North Korea and and potentially Pakistan, then it will take a lot longer for China to catch up with and overtake the US. And that's why this is a sort of existential question from, from an American perspective. But whether Europeans ally with America, how closely bound in Europeans are with an American agenda. And I think that there is a huge amount of overlap between what upsets Europeans about the developments within China and what upsets Americans, the model of political economy, the human rights agenda, a lot of the development of the surveillance state and how it's working its way forward, the unfair competition, not just in China, but in every other country in the world because of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. All of those things are things which are quite frustrating to Europeans as they are to Americans and where there is a lot of overlap and there's a possibility to make common cause. But there are also quite big distinctions between how Europeans and Americans see their interests, not least in a sort of balance of power in the in the Indo-Pacific, where Europeans obviously more sympathetic to having balance of power that favours open societies, the US, Japan, India, than they are wanting to see it as a sort of Pax Sinica. But they will not die in a ditch to preserve American primacy in the Pacific. And there's not that much they can do anyway, given the absence of, of the European equivalent to the Seventh Fleet. And that's where you're going to see some differences. And also, the more the US asks Europeans to decouple and to harm their economic interests in order to be good alliance members with the US, the tougher the ask is. Because what we're seeing on the one hand is a promise from the US that they will do less and less to help Europeans where it really matters matters in in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, in our neighbourhood. And in exchange, they want more and more help from Europeans on issues which are going to be costly to Europeans. And that's why it's a sort of tricky question and why a clever and far-sighted American approach is to recognise that an autonomous Europe that has real capabilities and is taking responsibility for itself will be much more useful to America than a weak and dependent European Union. And they would become firm allies of the agenda for European sovereignty and strategic autonomy because they could see that in the long term that will make Europe into a better partner for the US, a less needy one, a less annoying one, and that that will serve Europe well. But that does require quite a big Copernican shift in terms of how particularly Atlanticists within the American system, which is a dwindling bunch of people, Thanks, Mark. Jeremy, you indicated at the beginning of the conversation that you wanted to leave time to comment on the fashion choices at the inauguration ceremony yesterday. So I'll give you the last (laughs) word to either talk about that or anything else in what Mark said that you want to pick up on. Yeah, I thought that, you know, Biden made a really good choice in the suit that he wore. I thought it was interesting that he chose to wear a blue tie. I thought that was a good and radical choice. But I didn't really notice what any of the other people were wearing. Maybe you had some views on that, Susie. No, I think we'll leave it there, which means that we'll move on now from the core of the conversation about transatlantic relations and turn to the final item, which is the bookshelf section. Mark, do you want to go first? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Jeremy, do you want to go first? Yeah, Jeremy, should we turn to you? (laughs) Sure. While Mark quickly reads a book. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm reading a book called The Upswing, which is by uh, Robert Putnam. 
how America came together a century ago and how we can do it again. And he, Robert Putnam is the author of Bowling Alone, and he's sort of the doyen of American civil society and, and American social capital. And he's written a book on how all of the indicators of American life in terms of economic, cultural, equality, things like that, were on the upswing from the progressive era, which started around 1900 and into the mid-1960s. And they've all been on a downswing in the last 50 years. And so he's trying to understand how what we did before, what, what America did in the 1890s and 1900s, which set that long creation of social capital into motion, could be done again and restore the sort of American community, which in his view is what made the United States so great in the first half of the 20th century. Cool. Well, that sounds like the sort of positive outlook that we all need to be reading at the moment. Maybe I'll go next. I'm currently reading The Comedians by Graham Greene because I was recently unpacking a box of books having moved house. Is that the one in, in Haiti? Yes, exactly. It's in Haiti. I realised it was one I'd never read. And yeah, I've been really enjoying some of the opening passages, which quite pertinent to this conversation about the level of integrity that's required to stand as a candidate as president of the United States. Despite that feeling like it comes, does come from another time, it's quite uplifting. I'm in the foothills of a new book, which I just started called Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society by Ronald J. Dybert which is a really, really interesting discussion, I think could actually be quite significant for the transatlantic relationship, because it shows some of the debates which are going on within America about how to take on the internet titans, which control so much of our public sphere and of our everyday lives. And it has a very radical agenda for regulating these titans like Facebook and Google and other players that Europeans have been desperate to rein in. I know Jeremy's slightly skeptical about how much of an overlap there is between how Europeans see the the problems with these platforms and the way that Americans see them. But if we can find a common transatlantic agenda on those sorts of issues, I think it will not just improve the health of our politics, it will also make the transatlantic relationship much more robust and equip us well when it comes to also dealing with the, the challenges of Chinese tech companies. Great. So we'll put link to all of these books mentioned and also, of course, to the report that Mark Leonard and Ivan Krestev have launched this week on the crisis of American power that we've been talking about. That's all available at ecfr.eu slash podcast. And also to flag, there's a whole wealth of country level data, which is available on the site too, relating to this conversation, which might interest listeners. But if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast today, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or elsewhere. Please do give us a good rating and review us on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now, from Mark Leonard, Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Susie Dennison, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor has been Naomi Hunter.